This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This episode is titled Heretics Part 4, Compelling Issues. And this episode of Communio Sanctorum is going to be significantly different from our usual fare. Whereas when I give commentary on things, I usually verbally mark them off by giving a caveat and saying I'm offering an opinion, this entire episode is that. And here's why. Hang with me for a bit because it's going to take a little time to explain. This series on heretics, of which this is part four, assumes a right and wrong perspective on Christian doctrine. To call a belief or a person heretical means accepting some standard of orthodoxy. To say someone is out means knowing what in is. And not a few of the subscribers to CS no doubt find that assumption to be hideously arrogant Many more will at least consider it at best to be arbitrary. I wish I had solid figures, but there's really no way to know what percentage of the CS audience hails from the various faith and non-faith perspectives. But speaking anecdotally, I can say with confidence that a significant part of our audience is religiously unaffiliated. Some are agnostic, others are atheists, but they've shared their enthusiasm for the podcast because it's helped fill in a hole in their education and their knowledge of what they admit is an important part of history. While there have been a couple of non-theists over the last few years that have expressed their hostility, both to the podcast and to me personally, the vast majority have been kind, civil, even respectful, while expressing disagreement on theological issues. And quite frankly, I dig that. The following comments are offered with the intention that they may, hopefully, add some perspective to the interaction that takes place between theists and non-theists today. It seems that we're talking about and at each other far more than with one another. So what follows is aimed at two groups. Number one, postmodern skeptics, and number two, evangelicals. It's important that postmodern skeptics understand that when they engage a sincere and consistent Christian, that person comes to the table with a set of fixed presuppositions that are part and parcel of their faith. They are non-negotiables, if you will. Of course, how they hold and express them is another matter. Evangelicals need to be reminded that when speaking with a postmodern skeptic, clinging tenaciously to the gospel has to be done in an overarching sphere of love. As the Apostle Peter said, our defense of the faith must be conducted in a spirit of meekness. For those who've imbibed the postmodern conviction that truth is relative and that one person's truth doesn't necessarily have to be another's, let me clarify that classic Christian theology and a biblically consistent worldview don't allow that as a presuppositional starting point. A biblically consistent Christian worldview regards truth as absolute, eternal, and unchanging. Truth corresponds to what's real, and reality is determined by an eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent creator who exists in a category of being completely different from everything else, because that other category contains all that the creator created. So while for the postmodern, calling something heretical appears arrogantly judgmental and arbitrary, in a Christian worldview, 
Well, it's simply a statement of fact. Now, for sure, a judgment has been made, but it need not be made arrogantly. And if done properly, it certainly isn't arbitrary. It's the result of a laborious and careful analysis governed by a concern for truth, but tempered by the virtue of grace and humility. And this is a good place to insert a comment about the Christian obsession with evangelism. While the religiously unaffiliated may be tempted to shut the episode off at this point, (laughs) I ask you to indulge me for a moment because I think it may give you an important and helpful insight into evangelicals like myself. Christians living in Europe and the United States are feeling the heat of opposition. As the West has grown increasingly secular and Christianity has been squeezed from the place of cultural favor it once enjoyed, the success of secularism has emboldened it to become more overt and hostile in its opposition to the faith. Prayers in schools, Christmas trees in City Hall, the Ten Commandments in courtroom walls, the removal of the words Christmas and Easter from the holidays, all these things harbinger society's emerging hostility towards Christianity. Commensurate to all of that is the sense of empowerment on the part of individuals to freedom from being harassed by Christians sharing their faith. Now, some would say that while Christians have a right to believe whatever they want, others have a right to not hear Christians ever say what they believe. Being told that Jesus can save them is offensive because it means there's something they need to be saved from and that they aren't okay. Yet for a good part of their lives, they've been fed a steady diet of affirmation, told that they could do and be anything they wanted to. So being evangelized by a zealous Christian is considered deeply offensive and harmful because it erodes that fragile confidence. We're already seeing that mindset emerging. It's certain to become more official as agenda-pursuing secularists continue to hammer away at Christianity. What postmoderns need to keep in mind is that evangelical Christians living a consistently biblical worldview are compelled to share their faith and to seek to persuade unbelievers to put their faith in Jesus precisely because they don't want to be hypocrites. You see, that's the biggest criticism modern Christians face, that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. And granted, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who lack a lifestyle consistent with biblical morality and virtue. But to not share the gospel and earnestly seek to persuade people to be converted well, that would only add to the reputation of being hypocrites. Maybe an illustration would help. Let's say that I claim to love my neighbors and want the best for them. Then one night, while taking a walk in front of their two-story house, I see that the second floor is on fire. As I look through the living room window, I see the family sitting around watching TV, oblivious to the fire over their heads. What does love compel me to do? Well, it sends me running to their front door. If they ignore my knocking, tell me to go away, they're busy watching their favorite show, I yell through the door that their house is on fire. If they reply back that they don't believe me, uh, I'm not going to walk away and say, well, sucks to be you. No, I'm going to kick their door in and plead with them to at least come outside and see for themselves. Well, they're not going to be happy I kick their door in. They may even get angry and hate me until they realize I just saved their lives. Here's the point. Christians 
really believe this world is on fire, and unless people get out of its way, they're doomed to an eternal hell. The way out, the rescue, comes through the gospel. And once received, the gospel changes the human heart to one that loves God and others. So if I really love people, I have to tell them about Jesus and urge them to be saved. Anything else would be the worst kind of hypocrisy. I preface what follows with all of that to lay the groundwork for following up on how we ended our last episode. As a heretical sect, the Bogomils we looked at last time were able to attract nominal Christians for three main reasons that have been repeated by other heretical groups ever since. The first reason the Bogomils attracted Christians who were not well grounded in basic Christian theology was because some of them practiced their faith more zealously than many what we might call plain-striped Christians. Of course, there were plenty of nominal Bogomillians as well, but they weren't the ones the easy-target Christians were influenced by. They weren't because as nominal Bogomillians, they weren't sharing their faith as the zealous were. And the zealous were sharing their faith because their religious system required them to do so not out of the love that I spoke of earlier that ought to fuel the passion of evangelicals, but because Bogomillians believed that it scored them points with God. And this is a consistent theme of heretical sects. They alter the gospel's main point that salvation is a gift that God gives, apart from merit or good works, into being a product of good works and religious devotion. The zeal of the heretic is less the product of a restored relationship with God as it is an endeavor to attain a restored relationship with him. Today, when a recent convert to Christianity encounters a cultist walking their beat, ringing doorbells, or passing out literature while trying to talk to people about spiritual things, they compare that to the few Christians they know and wonder why their peers aren't out doing what the cultist is. And they conclude maybe it's because the cultist has the truth. But one can be sincere and still be wrong. Zeal isn't evidence of truth. It's just evidence that the person is motivated. The question is, motivated to and by what? The second reason nominal Christians were attracted to Bogomilism was because it seemed to provide an easy answer for the sticky problem of evil, the key word being easy. This is a philosophical problem that's proven to be a major challenge not just to a Judeo-Christian worldview, but to all major religions and philosophies. Now, it's not within the scope of this podcast to handle it here. We'd have to devote several episodes of extended length to do so. Suffice it to say that the dualism of Bogomilism posited two poles, one good, the other evil. It was easier for the uneducated and illiterate to grasp than that which was provided by medieval Christian theologians. There is a really good answer from the Christian worldview to the question and the challenge If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? But it can't be reduced to an eight-second soundbite. (laughs) Some have tried. Actually, the answer is a powerfully persuasive apologetic for the gospel. But that's for another podcast to deal with. Simply stated, it was easier for the uneducated of the 10th through 13th centuries to accept the spiritual-physical good-evil dualism of the Bogomils than to wade through orthodoxy's sometimes labyrinthine explanation of the fall. And third, 
when too few Christians were properly equipped to dispel the heretical ideas of the Bogomils, civil authorities resorted to force to suppress them, and the Church of the Martyrs became the Church of the Martyr Makers. Now, that may work to suppress a movement in the early stages, but it has a pernicious way of creating a controversy that fuels convictions, which only add to a more impressive display of zeal, which perpetuates the sect's attractiveness to the nominal. Onlookers witnessing official persecution wonder why, if the sect is errant, it can't be dealt with in the realm of words and ideas rather than swords and spears. Beliefs are rarely altered by iron or steel. They're changed by thoughts pressed home by a cogent argument. But when the mouth speaking the argument is connected to an arm wielding a weapon, threatening to use it if the subject doesn't comply, well, the force of the argument is drastically diluted, no matter how erudite and convincing it may appear. Historically, the Church of Jesus' followers grew far more rapidly when it was persecuted than when it was doing the persecuting. The Church cannot, it must not, look to the civil authority, no matter what banner it flies, to enforce its dictums or act as the regulatory agent over doctrine. Peter, put up your sword. Now, as I said at the outset, this episode was a wide swing away from our usual fare for Communio Sanctorum, but I hope it's helped to set at least some of the philosophy behind the church's long battle with heresy. Peace.